to the Pop Drones show, airing every Wednesday morning from 10 a.m.
to you from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. This is the Arts Report with a little bit of a late start today. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and I am joined by our guest, Valerie Easton, who is currently directing a production of Cabaret. Hello, Valerie. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, I'm Valerie Easton, and I'm the director and choreographer of Cabaret for Royal City Musical Theatre uh, at the Massey Theatre in New Westminster. Excellent. And uh, now, Cabaret is a it's one of the, it's a classic musical, and you've you guys have done some a lot of the sort of uh, playbook of classic musicals. You've done Oklahoma, for example. Um, you've done, uh, I believe. Uh, sorry, moment, let me just consult my notes here. You've done um, uh, Anything Goes as well, which is which is a one of Cole Porter's great musicals. But what specifically brought you to Cabaret? Um, well, I mean, I think it actually runs along with all the musicals we have been doing, because we have been doing things like uh, A Chorus Line and some other, other musicals that, have, uh, that are, are classic in, in that respect. So it's a little different because it, it, it uh, deals with a, a more serious subject. Um, you know, mainly uh, there's racism and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the political scene with the Nazis, which really quite sort of mirrors what's going on today. And uh, I, I just think it's a fantastic musical. Uh, the songs are amazing. Uh, it's, uh, but it does, it, even though it was in 1962 that it was brought out, it's one of those timeless shows. Every time uh, someone produces it, it becomes... Um, you know, it had the director puts their stamp on it. That's interesting, especially considering that these there's some legacy characters in it, like there's Sally Bowles and, well, there's Joel Grey as the MC in the film, which is a very which is a classic character. It's one of my favorite characters in fiction. How are you guys going to put your stamp on that? Would you say? Well, I think there's uh, for us there has been um, there's been about there's three or four different versions that have uh, have been written or have been. Uh, been rewritten since 1962 and uh there's a lot of things i have i've done it a few times before and there are things from each of those versions that i think are really important and uh so we put together kind of some of my sort of favorite uh moments in this particular production uh and i think there you know there was another sort of iconic uh version done a few years back with Alan Cumming, which was really quite different than the than the opening one. So as I say, I think if, just looking at it from my point of view, I think uh, it's, it's what is important to me in the script. And I think, as I say, very, uh, very applicable to what's going on today. It's, in fact, it's quite frightening. Um, and I guess most of the cast really sort of feels like that. And I think the people that are cast in the roles 
uh, are going to bring their own energy and their their version of those characters to the show. You think it's part of that burlesque approach to issues that with um, sort of this humor and this music used to deal with issues, these underlying issues, like the famous musical number with uh, with the uh, the gorilla costumes in the film. Yes, exactly. Um, that one originally in the original show was actually cut from the. Uh, from the show, because when it first came out on Broadway, the audiences did not understand uh, what it was trying to say, and uh, they got a lot of bad reviews over that number. And then when they did the the movie version of it, they put it back in in the movie version. It seemed that by that time the audience had had grown up to understand the underlying theme uh, of it. So that's pretty amazing, and I think I think it you know. The show really speaks to itself, and I think people are savvy enough now to be able to understand what that is and that we're not trying to make fun of anybody. We're trying to make a point. And that's an excellent distinction to make, especially, as you mentioned, with the, the topical themes present in the, in the show. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, where can we check this out if we want to go and see this sort of legacy in action? Um, you can get tickets to the Massey Theatre. Uh, 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 I think you probably have the exact information there, but you can either phone in or you can book them online. And you can also come to the Magnificent Massey Theater and pick them up. Um, and there again, it's Massey Theater is like one of the only big original theaters left in the lower mainland. And it's a fantastic 1200 seat theater with um, makes you feel like you're really in a theater, not in a little box. Um, so, uh, so I think if you have the exact information, that would be great because uh, I think it's a ticket set. At yep, uh, you can it, you can get tickets through the uh, Massey Theater website, and it runs until uh, April 29th. So it's still, it's still got, got a while. Uh, got a while to go, and uh, the the copy is you know the copy does really work. You know it's sort of set in 1931 Berlin in the seedy glamour of the Kit Kat Club. Its body MC provides a disturbing but fitting backdrop to the story of hard living entertainer Sally Bowles in a Weimar Germany. That really right, is, yeah, it's great, and it stars. If you've ever seen Lauren Bowler, she's been she's an iconic figure around around the city. She's just an amazing singer actor. She's playing. Sally Bowles and Andrew Cowden, who anybody who has seen Bart on the Beach, um, you will know him from there. And he is playing the MC, and it's quite fabulous. We have a wonderful cast, and uh, it's very exciting. All right. Well, we'll have to we'll have to catch that. Check it out if you can. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Cheers. Oh, thank you so much. Keep on, keep on, keep on, keep blah, 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 that. That's all, folks. <laughs> keep okay. on keeping on. Cheers. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Well, that was uh, award-winning choreographer and director Valerie Easton on Cabaret. Check it out at the Massey Theatre until the 29th. We're going to take a short PSA break. Uh, and when we return, we will have Madeline Osborne in the studio to talk about Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. I can't do any more justice to that than what I just said. Cheers. One is a student-run organization here to educate the public about the benefits of hemp and cannabis. Fast fact! Hemp is a renewable, sustainable source of food and fiber. Fast fact. Your body contains anandamide, which is part of the same family of substances as THC. To learn more, look us up on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash Hempology 101 UBC. Or come to one of our great events. And don't forget, legalization through education. Can't make no money giving your...
every radio show is brewed fresh and served fresh at the peak of its flavor. If you're a tough customer, only the taste of this radio show will do. So go ahead, let Dunkin' Donuts make your radio experience exquisite. Indeed. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, serving sweet treats from the pop underground. Thursdays, noon to one. Listen, radio is an important means of communicating 3,000 years of habit. And you bet it is. Uh, I'm back in CITR studios. I'm Jake Clark, and I am joined by Madeline Osborne, who is at the helm of Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Uh, Madeline, introduce yourself to our audience. I'm Madeline Osborne. I'm the director and choreographer, and I did a little bit of costume design for Mr. Burns. Now, uh, what's the premise of Mr. Burns, a post-electric play? Sort of give us a quick pitch. So it's cut up into three sections. The first two sections deals with a world that um, in America the power grid has gone down. And so it's this post-electric, post-apocalyptic world, and it deals with these survivors that are trying to retell a Simpsons episode, particularly the Cape Fear episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's about storytelling and tribe and just how our stories change over time. And then the third act goes 82 years after this post-electric incident to uh, show us how they've taken the Simpsons episode and turned it into a higher art form to demonstrate what happened in their own history with this power grid failing. That's very similar to um, what this reminded me of when I first heard about it was the uh, book series A Canticle for Leibowitz. It's a science fiction series about, so it starts with an electrician, he's a Jewish guy named Leibowitz, who converts to Catholicism during a nuclear apocalypse. And his artifacts, his shopping lists, his gimmicks become relics because that's all that's left over. Oh, cool. And I got to say, it's, so it's scared people... uh, Obsessing over pop culture references, mm. and the play is about that. So were, were you ever tempted to subtitle it 2018, the play? <laughs> we definitely make a lot of references to things that are happening now that are just written into the script already and that we've put in, uh, layered in underneath all of it with the choreography because it is so relevant to what's happening. And especially when you look at what's actually happened to these characters in terms of like the power grid going down and the information that the playwright gives us, it's very real. It's very real. It's something that could happen to us at any point, really. That's that's, a, that's an alarming thought, really is. Um, and uh, I guess what, one, one aspect of the copy, too, that was interesting was it's described as a pay-in-to-live theater and the resilience of Bart Simpson throughout the ages. Yeah. And now that's, that, that, that's very interesting to me because Bart Simpson's an iconic character. Like, he was at one point considered, well, I, I don't know, I don't remember who voted him this, but he was considered the most influential um, non-live-action uh, television character of all time. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And that, that that's a very interesting influence, and I kind of, like, what does that mean to you? Like, were, were you raised with The Simpsons? Like, how does that character sort of resonate with you? Yeah, I was, uh, I raised myself with The Simpsons. I was not allowed to watch Simpsons when I was a kid, um, but... Yeah, Bart was just the kid that could do whatever he wanted and kind of get away with it. And I think that's every kid's dream of being able to just, like, have fun and be, like, the cool kid. Like, he rode a skateboard and he spray painted and, like, did all these really cool things. So I think that, yeah, it was, like, every kid's dream to be kind of like Bart Simpson or, like, friends with that Bart Simpson character. And there's a lot of nostalgia for, for that now, sort of, you know. 
Oh, um, totally. The 90s were a simpler time. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny looking back on that and um, just sort of, because I, I saw, um, like, a lot of things from the 90s. It's, it's amazing that things that are now within, like, I'm, I'm assuming we're around the same age. Like, Maybe. Like, within <laughs> our living memory are kind of dated already a little bit yeah absolutely absolutely and that's it's something really interesting that like we've gotten to talk about in the cast because our youngest cast member is 22 and our oldest cast member is in his mid-40s so it's been really interesting just to talk about like what does pop culture mean to each of us living through those different eras um and then within the script like Anne Washburn is a little bit older so like what did it mean to her and then what references do we connect to and how can we influence that onto an audience that's going to be coming in from like ages 12 up to 80. How old is this play? When did Anne Washburn write it? 2011. Okay, so fairly fairly recently. Yeah. Because the generations that get towards the end of the alphabet sort of have this much more, I think, saturated relationship with pop culture. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot more of a multimedia experience, just, just going through it, especially with digital media. So that's really interesting, being able to plot out those references, like in things like Cape Fear, which is itself a reference to the movie Cape Fear, which mm-hmm. is... A remake, a remake of an of a movie in the '60s, which is an adaptation of a book. Yeah, layers, man. It's like yeah. an onion. Well, and there's so many references within Cape Fear to other movies, like Do the Right Thing and Night of the Huntsman. And so, mm-hmm. like, there's yeah, it's just like every time you pull back a layer, there's another 16 layers in this show. It's really cool. <laughs> sort of like Wikipedia freefall a little bit. Like, you ever find yourself sort of yeah. chasing down these references, like? Oh yeah, it's like a pop culture rabbit hole. <laughs> like then you, you when you you finally look up, you got the corkboard with all the string connecting everything. Yeah. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean? How do the lizard people get in here? What? Yeah. Oh my gosh, the amount of things that I just learned about like our general pop culture, like researching this over the past year, was ridiculous. And I learned all these little tiny facts, and I'm like, this is never going to be in the show. But now it's just like useless trivia that I have in my head. What was the, what's the weirdest bit of trivia? What's the one thing you'd bust out to sort of be like? Ooh. Oh my gosh. I guess like when you say lizard people, like that was really something that wasn't on my radar before, but then like it's referenced in The Simpsons in a few episodes. Yeah. Um also just discovering like interesting facts about the actual actors that play all these characters and I'd never watched the actors voice the characters. And so I had these characters in my head since I was like a kid and going and actually watching interviews with these actors and like finding out about their personal lives and how their lives and their history influenced the characters and really like these actors built up the Simpsons characters they weren't just presented to them does that sort of um seeg into your direction a little bit like the way you're having the actors direct you're directing the actors sorry it could be the other way around I don't know but (laughs) but the way you're sort of directing them in the show uh, in terms of like letting their own histories influence their characters, yeah, and in light of the sort of in light of what they're referencing, like in light of what she sort of picked up from The Simpsons, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is such a dense play that if I didn't allow the actors to bring in their own information, it wouldn't be as nearly as wonderful as it is. Um, and in terms of all the little tidbits I found, we do big circles at the beginning of each rehearsal, and it was kind of our opportunity to talk about the world that we're creating in that scene that day, but also just like little tidbits we'd found in our own research. So that was really interesting just to be able to be like, okay, where can we fit this in the show? Does it fit into the show? Maybe it's for the next show. And uh, yeah, some really fun stuff, particularly in act three, because all you get is lyrics when you look at act three. So we have Hmm. a composer that's come in and done an original score, and then it's just us filling the space. Really? Yeah. 
So you get post-apocalyptic Simpsons, the musical. Yeah, actually. <laughs> that, 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 that sounds terrific. Yeah, it's uh, really amazing. Now, to sort of go back to the payee into live theater thing, that mm. struck me as very interesting because theaters recently had to adapt a lot of ways. There was a great, uh, there was an interesting article on the website Beams and Struts a while ago that said theater is evolving, talking about sort of the rise of one-man shows and sort of the theater medium you see a lot in Fringe sort of entering the mainstream because it has to to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, what, with your personal experience in live theater, how did you sort of come to this? Like, what what was your experience that said yes, I want it? Made you say yes, I want to do theater. Do theater in general? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think I'm, I'm just witnessing. I've always been a part of arts. My parents are a part of the arts. Um, but to actually get into theater and be like, this is what I want to do as a career is just witnessing the disconnect that I'm really seeing with my peers and everyone else because of things like social media and just our ability to look up anything on Google. And when you go into the theater, you have to connect with the people in front of you. And my job as a director is to make sure that the actors are creating something that the people in the audience can connect to. And being able to start those conversations that are so important. Like in this show, it's about starting the conversation about tribe and how important storytelling is and how important art is to our societies. So I think that's what's really kept me going with it. And I do a lot of um, performance art as well and interactive performance art. So that's really like a big driving force for me is just making sure that people are actually talking to each other. That sort of immediacy seems to definitely be something you're focused on because on your website it says you also have another project ongoing with this sort of experience room, am I saying it right? Yeah. It seems like one of the technical situations, one of the guys from the Butthole Surfers would sort of, uh, no, that's not not a good comparison, but it seems (laughs) like this sort of, um, uh, it's, it's this tech rig and it's in this studio space and the audience is in there for an hour. Yeah, so that was um, Entertain Me, a show I did last year, and it's uh, with a performance duo that I work with. And we just put people in a room for an hour with a bunch of, like, old nostalgic toys and puzzles and gizmos and took away their cell phones, and they just had to interact with each other for an hour. Within 30 minutes, Lord of the Flies happened. Some nights, yeah. (laughs) They destroyed the room. It was really interesting. Really? Oh, yeah. People built, like, forts out of paper and chairs and, like, had little forts across from each other. And then other nights, like... My mom came one night and somebody was like teaching her how to use a Game Boy for like 30 minutes and it was really beautiful. So yeah, we're continuing on with a project. Um, It's called Asking Alice. It's the next show I'm doing with Little Mountain Lion and it's a very similar thing about interaction. This is the same company that does... Um, Mr. Burns. Mr. Yeah. Burns. Yeah. Little Mountain Lion. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, it's a Vancouver company, I assume. Yes. Yeah. They're Vancouver based. Because um, Ann Washburn is from Seattle? No. I think she's she, in New York. She's she in New York? Yeah. No, no, I'm thinking of, uh, no, entirely different playwright. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them. Entirely different. Thing. I'm thinking of David Mamet. No, no, that's not it. <laughs> no, um, with um, some of the shows you've been in have this almost Bart Simpson-y character to them. I'm thinking specifically of Rocky Horror and Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. You ever sort of draw on that to sort of connect these two things? I think every show I do, I take a part of it with me. I mean... When you're doing anything, it becomes your entire life and your entire existence. So you have to take those shows with you. So, yeah, I definitely think that, like, I'm very into that. In Rocky Horror, it's that, like, pantomime the drag queen scenarios, the, like, big performances, and like, just the, like, silly energy that absolutely comes into Mr. Burns. With Midsummer Night's Dream, the version that I did was a movement-based Midsummer Night's Dream, drawing off of the darkness, and that 
also comes into Mr. Burns. The script is very funny. It's definitely a comedy, but there's this dark world behind everything else that these characters have to live with. So, Ah, yeah. so it's sort of uh, keeping the darkness at bay with the... Uh... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Within tragedy, we always retell the stories that make us feel most nostalgic. You think that's a necessary... That- um, art has an almost religious aspect there with well in this there's a parallel here but how do you, do you see that sort of coming about personally or have you ever seen that oh absolutely yeah when I'm in the theater I've had I felt like I've had religious experiences in the theater just being able to feel like I'm connected to something larger what about as a sort of personal soporific like is there anything that is a real comfort watch for you or or read or listen comfort watch mm. My I don't really know. Is laptop. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Say hello um, from the other side because it's Adele. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in terms of like shows and things. Yeah, or just just whatever. Yeah. Like if if you're you're having a bad day, do you like uh, put on a particular album or or watch an episode of a certain show or mm. or, or read a book or. Like, I, I, ugh, it sounds so cheesy, but I got to say The Simpsons. Like, it's just become so much a part of my life. If it's not The Simpsons, it's definitely Parks and Rec. Was that since Mr. Burns or after Mr. Burns? Parks and Rec is awesome. Parks and Rec is awesome. Um, Simpsons has always been, like, my comfort zone, like, since I was a little kid. I, especially Lisa Simpson is, like, one of my favorite characters in TV t- all, all time, so... She any episode that she's in is usually one that I'm like pretty into. You ever, you ever you ever feel tempted to pick up the saxophone? I tried once at a party. It was not good. <laughs> I just, just did did not instantaneously become Kenny G. No. <laughs> well, there's, there's probably more pluses to that than minuses. Actually, more than I think about it. I'm I'm good with just being a director. I'll let the actors handle the instruments. <laughs> is, does any does it, do any of the actors play instruments in, oh, in, in yes. the show? Yeah, yeah. We have lots of live music in the show. Like like what instruments? Guitar. Uh, we have guitar. We have sitar, ukulele. Tambourine. We have uh, melodica. We have a thunder machine, which is considered an instrument. We have someone beatboxing on a harmonica. Is the thunder machine like the sheet of metal that just? No. <laughs> no. This is the cooler version. It's like um like a cylinder that's like a little drum, and then it has a like spiraled cord that comes out of it. So you just have to like shake it around, and it makes this amazing thunder sound. Like sort of like a really uh, next level rain stick? No, it's just like, think of like a coffee can, and like the bottom of the coffee can's being cut off, and then there's like a spring, like a very long, like a five foot long spring that comes out the bottom, and then you shake the spring. Okay, okay, I could say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah I get you. Yeah, so that's really cool. Yeah, because it's post-electric, so we did our absolute best to not put anything through speakers. Anything that can be on stage is on stage. Are the actors mic'd? No. Or, no, okay, no. so. And w- which theater is this at? Where can we see this? Studio 1398. Okay, 1398, so you could, you, yeah, you can project, definitely project in that. Oh, yeah, okay. it's a super intimate space. Yeah, because I was, I was there for, um... I'm pretty sure I was there last time for the past premiere of the past to play by oh yeah Canadian Arthur Arthur Holden yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's yeah. uh I've seen I, uh, musically there I saw a show called Zeppelin was a cover band a couple of years ago for Fringe oh cool. and it was this guy um sort of showing all all the blues songs in Led Zeppelin and it it sort of worked musically that way because it was very it was kind of funny actually because he couldn't plug in <laughs> and Zeppelin's a pretty oh, no. a pretty uh it, it wasn't trying to it was an acoustic guitar okay. but like Zeppelin's not an acoustic band you know <laughs> I don't know why I sounded like what why did it sound like that there <laughs> yeah that that was one of those that I, I I can definitely see that working and um that's 
That's quite a thing, you know. Well, if if I gotta ask, if you were in a post-electric scenario, what would be one gadget you'd need, like one sort of manual gadget that you think would be absolutely necessary? Manual gadget. Mm, you know, a pair of scissors. Yeah. They're super useful. Just like working in the theater, I always have a pair of scissors with me. You know, for for cut yeah. for you know cutting papers, you know, in- cutting papers. You can use it as a weapon. In- I was going to say intimidating like- the actors. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have to do that with this cast. We're doing it's another hour of rehearsal. <laughs> Nobody's going home. I've already locked the doors. <laughs> and then a Bloomhouse movie happens. <laughs> Turns out the actors were ghosts the whole time. Oh, no. Yeah, I can be crazy sometimes, so maybe that's it. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that's the next play. All right. It was, it was great to have you in the studio, Madeline. Hey, and we got it. So, so much. everyone check out Mr. Burns. It is running until, well, it's a good stretch of days anyway. It's running until yeah. the 10th? 21st. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is running until the 21st at Studio 1398. Uh, get yourself some tickets. Enjoy some classic Simpsons references, acoustic music, and the Thunder Machine. The Thunder Machine, yeah. That could just be the tag like, enjoy the Thunder Machine. <laughs> yeah, like some guy shows up to a Slayer t-shirt like, rock on. Yeah. <laughs> Little Thunder Machine in the background. <laughs> it's the Simpsons? Okay, cool. Whatever. <laughs> All right, Uh, we're going to take a short PSA break, and uh, when we return, we will have Ali McKay and a segment with our correspondent, Lua Presidio, on, respectively, uh, Ali McKay's film, Flash Flood, and uh, what we've seen of Chelsea Hotel and UBC MTT's Heathers. Be with you in a minute. I like Star Trek. Yeah, Yeah, cool. cool. I love The Lord of the Rings. Great. Great, I'm into obscure 1950s atomic monster movies. Uh, Sure. I really enjoyed the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles. We can work with that. Here at the UBC Sci-Fi and Fantasy Society, we accept everyone. We have weekly movies, game nights, and the largest non-academic library at UBC. Come by our club room, 3206D in the Nest. It's a great place to eat lunch, hang out, and procrastinate. Check out our Facebook group, UBC Sci-Fi and Fantasy Society, to find out what's going on. The Canadian Foundation for Cross-Cultural Dialogue proudly introduces its new project, Baldwin and La Fontaine, towards responsible government. With your family, friends, and classmates, learn more about the role played by those important figures in shaping Canadian government as we know it today. Visit baldwinlafontaine.ca to discover clips, documentaries, and a teaching guide. Enter the National Web Contest for a chance to win a trip for two to Toronto or a post-secondary scholarship. Headphones. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, you can you can put them on, you can take them off, okay. you know. Yeah. It, just, it depends on whether or not you want to hear my voice in mono or stereo. <laughs> this Mo- is fine. Most people just turn it to mute. Uh, hello, we are back with the Arts Report from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm Jake Clark, desperately trying to enunciate clearly. And I am joined by Ali McKay, the director and animator of the fi- short film Flash Flood, a, one of the features at... The Real to Real Film Festival. Did not stumble over one of those words. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me in. Hey, it's a pleasure. Um, and the, the second I heard about Flash Flood, I was really interested because it, it's a rotoscoped uh, short. And before we talk about uh, the rest of the film, I just want to ask, 
what what brought you to rotoscoping? What brought me to rotoscoping? It's, uh, it was actually a matter of uh, practicality more so than uh, um, than creativity. Uh, at first, uh, I wanted to do the film uh, traditionally animated and not rotoscoped, but uh, I realized um, the number of people I'd have to cast as models for the, I mean, you know, um, and, uh, oh, sorry, not the number of people I'd have to cast. What I'm saying is what I ended up doing was... Uh, getting uh, stock footage uh, and rotoscoping from that. Um, I I got uh, low resolution um, footage of people and houses and such. And the whole film is actually traced from that uh, stock footage. And uh, the reason I didn't go for traditional animation is I uh, wanted to do a lot of it myself, and I'm not especially skilled in um, traditional animation, and I find with rotoscoping, um, you can get a lot across uh, with footage that's already been existing and turn it into something new. Did you look at any other rotoscoped film? Like uh... a, a couple. Um, there aren't that many that I uh, know of. Uh, you know, Waking Life would be the one. The Scanner Darkly, yeah, too. Scanner Darkly, yeah, Scanner Darkly, both by the same person. Yeah, yeah Richard Linkler. Yep, I, of course. And so uh, that was actually a bit of an influence. And um, there was another short film actually called uh, Synesthesia, a subjective reenactment of... Oh, no, an objective reenactment of subjective reality, and that was the other film that inspired me to do it that way. How did that come across? That uh, sounds trippy. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm, it's not my film. It's a film I saw a while ago, but uh, it was it was really interesting. It was a visualization of synesthesia. And what is what is Flood about? Can you give us a quick pitch? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Flash Flood uh, started as a way for me to... Um, express my own gender identity. Uh, I'm a non-binary person, and I I often find it really difficult to uh, explain through words um, my own experiences. And, uh, you know, I've tried a lot of different ways to say it, and eventually I realized I need to make a film about this um, that can convey kind of the gravity of what I experienced as a young kid uh, in uh, a small town. And I used the metaphor of a... uh, a worldwide flood to uh, talk about how the isolation felt of being non-binary in a town of 300 people. It's a very biblical choice of metaphor. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it was kind of one of the reasons I did it is because there was a lot of uh, uh, religious tension in that town, so yeah, it, oh. was, it was an intentional uh, kind of thing. <laughs> and the experience is there's, there's different voices in this. There's, yes. Uh, there's three different actors. It's a very conversational delivery, and I was wondering sort of how you directed that. Yeah, you... uh, those two people are my friends, uh, Jesse and Helen, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we're not really close friends, but we have bonded over similar experiences and uh, actually all of these interviews were done after a couple uh, hours of drinking and just sitting around and and uh, you know um, uh, there was a lot more there than what I used there was maybe like an hour of of conversation for each person so I whittled it down to that and that's why it sounds conversational because it, it was <laughs> like, like sort of the well no. Not not effectually, but in terms of Eric Andre does the same thing. Yes. Where he has like an hour of footage. Yes, yes. Got like the best of for it. And were, were, were these pieces of text, did, did you have the image first and then the story? Or? I, 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 uh, I had the image first for sure. Um, I knew that I needed people to talk about their experiences growing up. And uh, I mean, it's all very much in my own kind of framework of how my experience was. Like I can't pretend to speak for them, uh, either of them, but uh, they were happy to be involved. So. Have you been making films since you were 16? Uh, no, since I was 10. 
Yes. You've had films in festivals since you were 16. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Correction. <laughs> God, you're making us all look bad. <laughs> and, but it, is that, how, how does your experience sort of shape the way you create art? Does it sort of connect in your head? Does it, is there a continuity for you? Or is it just a way you found to sort of express it? Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a way I found to express it. You know, uh, I started at age 10 just uh, messing around with Windows Paint and Movie Maker, and it's just always kind of <laughs> come naturally to me. Uh, it's, it's a way that I feel really comfortable expressing my own creativity. Um, yeah, I'm self-taught, and I, I uh, yeah, started with <laughs> Microsoft Paint, so. <laughs> In that event, having done so much work on your own, you, this was a thesis project for Emily Carr. It was, so. yes. What, what, what did Emily Carr, did they teach anything? Did they change sort of the way you look at your style or just sort of? They didn't have any input really uh, on the project at all, actually. Um, I actually was kind of discouraged uh, quite a few times along the line by Emily Carr, but uh, I, I finished the film and it was all successful uh, in, in my eyes. But yeah, I did, didn't get much support from Emily Carr instructors. Uh, <laughs> just not, not just, on the wavelength? Yeah, or? just not on the wavelength, like, uh, oh, I don't think that this works, and uh, I'm not sure it's clear, and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with the final results, so I think that's what matters. <laughs> that's, that, uh, exactly. And, well, you're, on the, you're in Real to Real right now. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, as this is an auditory medium, sort of the pun there doesn't really come across, but it's real, <laughs> R-E-E-L, to... R-E-A-L. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a very interesting statement. And this is a very diverse, like, very accessible festival. It's got a wide array of interesting programming. And that interests me because we've had a few uh, youth content creators on the show. And there's been, it's definitely been described that there's a bit of a disconnect between the festival circuit, especially for something like film, uh, and the accessibility of it. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry, did I say accessibility twice? <laughs> That's all right. Um, yeah, no, I uh, totally agree, especially with uh, social media and things like YouTube. I find that youth find it a uh, bit daunting, maybe, uh, festival circuits, and, and uh, Real to Real is not that. Um, when I was in high school, my film got into Real to Real, actually, in, as part of their high school uh, shorts program, and uh, that was the first festival I was ever in, and it was a really interesting sort of uh, introduction to that world. It, I definitely recommend it to all high school students. <laughs> Where were you in high school? Were you? You're I was on Vancouver you're... Island uh, on Qualicum Beach. <laughs> Qualicum Beach? Yeah. Is that... Central mm... Island, oh, okay. uh, north of Parksville, really small town. I moved from a small town to another small town when I was a kid, so. Okay. Yeah. And then you, you grew up there? Uh, yeah, I grew up there. Okay. Yeah, until grade 12. So. And then you moved here? And then for... I moved here for university, yes. Okay. <laughs> How you liking it so far? Oh, great. Yeah, um, I, I love Vancouver. I actually just, uh, <laughs> funny enough, I just moved back to Vancouver Island. I, I, I wish I was still living in Vancouver, but um, my most recent film project, uh, animation project, it uh, it's set on Vancouver Island, and I uh, feel like it's important to immerse myself there. What so. would that be? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm working on a uh, short film. It um, doesn't really have a title yet, but it's an animated short film. It's not rotoscoped. It's traditionally animated, and uh, it's going to be set in the British Columbian well, in wilderness in the, well, specifically the eastern uh, Vancouver Island wilderness, and it's an animated film about a house cat who gets stranded in the rainforest and tries to find the uh, motherly affection of a mountain lion and doesn't work out quite as planned. <laughs> I was say, that sounds like it could be adorable or terrifying. <laughs> exactly. It's both. <laughs> that's <Aww>. hopefully. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the poor kitty. Yes, yes. That, that's, uh, but it's a, it's an all right ending. So I'm not really a cat person, but I've been on Board Panda a lot recently. Uh, you know, yes. they, they find some of the photos that get to you. Of course they do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good way to pass the time. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I, I gotta ask if I, I try to ask this question all the time, but if you could undertake a, a full project, like a full length project, what would it be? What would it look like, and what do you want to do with it? Interesting. Uh, my dream project is I want to do an English language uh, biography of Osamu Tezuka, uh, if you know the creator of Astro Boy and yeah. Kimba the White Lion. Yeah. Um, he's a really, really interesting. Um, creator to me and uh, there's been a lot of film work done about him in Japan but I haven't yet to see a feature length uh, documentary about him here and that's a project I'd love to take on someday. Is he still alive? He's not. He died in 89, uh, 1989. I remember reading one of his comics about the, the Buddha. One yeah, of those ones yeah, Buddha. That's a, yes. He's very prolific, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he, he like, actually holds the world record for most comic pages written, drawn by a human. <laughs> yes. How many? I think it was 300,000. I think. Good lord, yes. that's quite the output. <laughs> yes. He, was he working up until he died? Yes. I think his last words were, I'm begging you, let me work. <laughs> yes. Well, just talk, was he talking to the guy with the sickle in the hood, <laughs> the side in the hood, just, let me work. Looked yes. at his watch, sorry, man. <laughs> yes, exactly. Swish. Um, so, in terms of animation, are you influenced heavily by Japanese animation? Uh, do you, do you yeah, like it a lot? Yeah, I, especially uh, not so much modern Japanese animation, but 60s, 50s Japanese animation I, I really enjoy. There's just something about the kind of cute aesthetic with really heavy subject matter that really appeals to me, and I'm not sure why that is, but uh, it's something I strive to include. What's an example of the heaviness? Um, well, hmm, let me think. How do you say... Um, I just read one called Dororo, and it's about a, uh, it's drawn in a really cute kind of, you know, Astro Boy kind of style, except it's about a samurai who uh, has to regain his lost body parts <laughs> um, because his father sold them to demons, for example. This is what I mean. It's typical thing. It's typical. Don't you hate it when that happens? Yeah, absolutely. Well, is this Oni's got my arm. Well, I gotta, gotta get it back. Gotta get symmetrical again. Yeah, just, just another day in the life. Yes. What's, what's uh, one of those that, because I, I, I wouldn't be familiar with that. I don't know if many of my listeners would. Mm-hmm. Maybe they would. I have no idea. Sure. But what, what's one example of that you would just recommend that everyone's got to read? Um, let me think. One example of that that everyone's got to read. Who? I'd say uh, the um, Blackjack, Tezuka's Blackjack. It's a medical drama that a lot of people actually say inspired uh, Dr. House, which is really strange. Um, but it's about a wandering surgeon with a limp who uh, does, um, you know, um, surgery on people who can't afford it. And it's a really interesting kind of serial story. How long is it? Like it's is like it, a uh, thirteen volumes or something. Okay, so yeah. that's is that is that long or short or it's pretty long, yeah. Because like I'm trying to think like One Piece is at oh that's One much Piece longer. is a monster though, <laughs> yes. like it's a Leviathan. <laughs> like I, I see the volumes for that in the bookstore, and each one of them could probably stop a bullet, and there's like thirty nine. Yeah, it's not quite like that, but some of his stuff gets that way. I'm assuming multiple people have worked on that. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> something's gotta gotta happen. And so, are there any other influences that you just kind of? thought that he kind of yes. brought to bear on this? Yes, yes. Actually, a really big one, and I sh- should mention this. Um, the film's look is really, really inspired not so much by other animated films, but by uh, this comic artist who I really uh, respect called John Porcellino, uh, who did uh, comics called King Cat Comics, and they're just these really simple black and white line drawings of daily things that he experiences. But he's, uh, he's a Zen Buddhist, and they're all really uh, interesting, um, really poignant kind of short Little and I, uh, I really wanted to get that kind of feeling across in my film. That lots of white space, just a little bit of detail, but a lot said with just those few lines. And there's something about that that's really appealing to me. A lot of emphasis on the fluidity of yes, the lines exactly. too, with the, 
the movement because that, that's what I that's what I noticed in the rotoscoping while watching it is that there's a lot of fluidity and there's a lot of that's the sort of advantage of rotoscoping exactly close to that that's one of those things Ralph Bakshi never used rotoscoping I don't he? think he did maybe a little bit because Lord it, of the Rings he did some of the not not on that one but I'm trying to think like fire and ice maybe like because that that's one of the ones where he's always interested in that mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. getting that much closer to live action through cartooning absolutely that, and that's that's what I would have thought of except for blink later yeah yeah you know rotoscoping to me it really looks like a dream uh and that's another reason that I used it it's that's that motion that's almost lifelike but not quite it's just a little weird it's just a little wobbly and uh, I think that makes me think of a dream actually quite a bit and this whole film was supposed to be kind of in 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 someone's thoughts you know so sort of as a like a, a, a sort of kind of some kind of cosmic story. Yeah, well, sort of. It, I mean, it's it's not a real thing that that happens, and uh, I don't really know how to describe that. But uh, it's 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 metaphorical, and it's it's not a real occurrence. So I thought it would be interesting to give it that sort of dream quality. In, in, in terms of stories that um, appeal to you personally, because as as a non-binary person, mm. there's. Not not a lot of stories that really no. focus on that. No, there aren't. I actually, it's, it's really sad. I don't have very many uh, influences in in that respect. Or uh, I really should look more into works by other non-binary people, but it's so difficult to find them, and uh, it's 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 a challenge for sure. Do you think that the the climate is, would change if the, there were? Stories yes, like, I do, that, and that I that proliferated exactly. And I think uh, it's really important that. Um, People like us need to tell those stories, even if they're not about being non-binary, not about being trans. Uh, Stories featuring people, normal people like non-binary people, you know, there definitely needs to be just more of that in general, not just about their struggles, but just featuring them as characters, I think. So that they're becomes something that is that is known exactly yeah <laughs> there's a there's a lot of, lot of ignorance about that i can i can i can attest. yes <laughs> and um sorry, sorry just trying to decipher my notes here my, my handwriting is atrocious like you, you you've got an artist hand i'm assuming you've got neat handwriting i don't it's horrible <laughs> horrible handwriting no it doesn't follow through no 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 i, I guess it's true also of doctors because <laughs> surgeons have to be good with their hands terrible did handwriting. you see the lines in flash flood they're like this right. <laughs> shaking my hand is shaking that's <laughs> <laughs> the rotoscope. Like, it, 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 there's a fluid movement. Oh, uh, color. Mm-hmm. That was also not because it, it's very stark, very yes. minimalist, but the characters are in different color. They are, yeah. And is, does the color relate to the voice to you? It, how do, how it, do you it see did. color? I, uh, I tried to, I think uh, there's a subtitle version of the film where each of the sub characters' subtitles are in the color that their character is. Um, but yeah, I, I picked uh, uh, mostly just to visually differentiate them because when I s- screen tested it, they weren't different colors. And uh, everyone was saying, who's that? I don't know. So I thought it would be good to color code them, and then I realized that that's actually kind of it kind of worked in the context of the film. I uh, used that in you know when they go underwater uh, f- to represent uh, self exploration. The colors get brighter, and and I just kind of pushed it further. Sort of get a little bit of nimbus around them. Exactly. Yeah. I would use uh, thicker um, brushes to kind of put a glow effect around and such. So. Was the entire film hand drawn? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, every frame is, um, well, it's digital, but it's still hand-drawn, so. Nice. Yep. That's, that's, that's impressive. I could, couldn't do that. 
Good lord. <laughs> As, and what goes into making an animated film? Like, it, it's is it, what is the difference between animation and live action for you? Is it when does that sort of when you decide I'm going to tell the story through animation or through? Oh, it's well, you know, uh, I definitely don't think this story, for example, could have been told through live action. It's uh, or just when you're. It's about scale, I think, and that's why I wanted to do it through animation. Is it's much harder to get that sense of grandness and big open spaces with live action and you know I mean lot people can do it with a budget but when you have no budget like I did <laughs> I paid for it out of my own pocket um, the way you can get those big open spaces is animation kind of like how Archer can do the car chases and the explosions when they're on the yes family guy's budget yes exactly yes. Or I'm, I'm not even sure family guy's budget is exorbitant it's it's pretty unfortunately big <laughs> that, that show is past its prime you don't say it really is like there there was a time when family guy was funny I'll stand by that but it's it's really outlived its welcome like um do you remember when Once Upon like, how, a Million Ways to Die in the West? Yes, came out? yes, I do. Like that, that it's the same problem mm-hmm. with uh, with everything. Like, because I thought Ted was funny, mm-hmm. but like uh, the whole thing, it's it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to me that uh, animation for adults is always comedy, like on television. Why is that? It's something that I've always wondered. Why is why is it de- delegated to, to, to comedy? Why, why animation can be used to tell so many different kinds of stories, but for some reason, it's always a comedy show. <laughs> I was going to mention BoJack Horseman, but that really it, it, It's water. kind of a comedy. <laughs> a sad comedy. It's got some really dark moments <laughs> to it. Yeah. That's, yeah. There's, a, there's a great show. I, I'm amazed BoJack Horseman doesn't win more awards. Yeah, it's, I, know. I, 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 kinda, I know a couple of the people who worked on that. It's, it's, really? It's a neat show. Not, not well, <laughs> but yeah. In, in what capacity? Um, I d- just briefly, I don't even... I don't. I shouldn't talk about them because I. I just no, no issue. <laughs> yes. That's like that's like how I like I technically know Richard Simmons. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. I'm. I'm like, he shook my hand once for a, a photo. That's, I, yes. I was I was working at an event. Where, that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah. We got connections. We know people. Exactly. We're forces to be reckoned with. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we can check out. You can check out Flash Flood at Real to Real. Is there any other place we can find your film if we can't make it the festival? Uh not no. Unfortunately, it will be online in a couple months after it finishes its festival circuit. But until then, not so much. Where would we be able to find it online? Uh, uh, on YouTube different. when it happens. It'll oh, be YouTube it'll be on YouTube if you look up Flash mm-hmm. Flood, a rotoscoped documentary. Okay, awesome. And Real to Real is running from the eighth to the fourteenth. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's an international festival for youth. It's got some it's got some really great features, and it has. Uh, you know, it has actually it has actually a day long workshop in film animation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just did my own Wilson impression. Wow. <laughs> wow. I've seen the supercut of that. It's like it's just you know, he puts his stamp on the performance. All right, Ali. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, pleasure being here. Thank you. All right. And uh, when we return, uh, Alua and I will discuss Chelsea Hotel and UBC musical theater troupe's Heather's. Um, well, be with you in a moment. To understand more about fashion, we asked CITR student executive and fashion expert Jonathan Q what fashion means to him. Like, it's just aesthetically something that's so ostentatious. Typically, typically. I mean, because of course, I mean, it's also, you know, I mean, when, when you say fashion, I think people are talking explicitly about uh, consumerism as opposed to someone who buys, like, uh, like you know. Let's say, you know, someone buys a 
If you really want to know more about fashion, come on down to CITR in the Student Union Building of UBC and pick up some of our merchandise à la mode. Nous avons t-shirts, sweatshirts, socks, and coffee mugs. But it's also very aesthetically gripping. To keep you styling in support of the station you love. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Well, actually, is it? Because, I mean, you know, I was going to say because of the cultural vacuum that we exist within, but then, you know, uh, really, fashion today is kind of derived from the European idea of couture, and that's been around for centuries. LGBTQ2I Night is a positive space for folks to learn about bike maintenance in a relaxed environment led by queer mechanics and volunteers. It takes place on the fourth Wednesday of every month at the Bike Kitchen on UBC's campus. Bring your own bike and fix them with our tools, come with questions and ask away, or learn by watching other folks work on their bikes. Beginners are always welcome. This event is entirely free to attend and there will be free pizza. For more information, visit bikecoop.ca. And we're back, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC campus. Uh, I'm your host, Jake Clark. I'm Lua. And Do we want to go with Chelsea Hotel first or Heather's? Um, you choose. Chronological order. Let's go with Chelsea Hotel. So Chelsea Hotel was, and is, is a uh, actually... It's 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 a it's a returning play to the Fire Hall Center, uh, which is in um, oh where is it? It's Fire Hall something. Yeah. it's a very small the the, um, the place near the thing. It's you in Gastown. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and it is a uh, a jukebox musical with the songs of Leonard Cohen. Now, you were pretty new to this. You hadn't really heard anything at all about Leonard Cohen. I was raised well, on his music, so we came into this with very different perspectives. Well, the only song I knew by him, and I didn't know it was by him, um, was Hallelujah. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, I had no clue who he was. Um, but I came out of the show, like, pretty happy because his songs are actually pretty good. <laughs> like, I enjoyed a lot of them. Did you have a favorite one? Mm, not, like, I can't say just because the way the musical flowed was so... Because since I don't know the songs, I don't know yeah, when one song okay, started and the other one began. So to me, it kind of like flowed one thing into the other. And it was like this one long, really long, like two-hour-long song. They also had um, a lot of the songs sort of also were fragments and in between each other like they did. Actually, Hallelujah was in kind of had a reprise because its first start was this really weird rendition where it's this red lit sort of electric nightmare um i didn't even notice that i only got caught it on the second part yeah, it was, and i was like oh i know this song that one i know <laughs> it was a very odd reimagining of it but it, it it worked shockingly well um so um so paper is a motif throughout most of it the setting the hotel room has paper walls yes they do do paper thin hotel um there's one of the songs like is paper thin hotel uh where there's literally the walls are made of paper so that was a pretty good shot and it's um the paper there's these heaps of crumpled paper throughout 
That's really interesting because um, it's it's just a really smart technique because they actually made like blankets of paper that was co- that were covering the instruments and the table and everything. Yeah. And then as they were starting to use the stuff, they uncovered and it was like, oh, nice, <laughs> more stuff comes on set. Um, but the the thing that's interesting to point out is that the crumpled paper wasn't just like oh crumpled paper. No, it was like this guy trying to write songs, and he was like. The room was full of crumpled paper because he was like um, writing it and then ripping it out of the notebook, crumpling it up and throwing it around. And the, the so the premise of this play is that there's a character, a writer, capital W, and it's basically him trying to find material through these reminiscences of mostly his past relationships. I, I tend not to like things pe- when writers write about writing because I find it self-indulgent. But Leonard Cohen's one of those guys who's such a great songwriter that it, it does work, especially considering the amount of attention he lyrically pays to poetry, like in, so- in Tower of Song, for example. You know, I was talking to Hank Williams, but he, no, was it I was talking to Hank Williams? The, it, was, it was one of the, um, like, that's one of the songs where that definitely sort of references that relationship. And I was really impressed by the way one, that it was incorporated. Two, the way it was performed. I, okay, the actors are so talented. Um, every w- single one of them played at least one instrument. And at points, they switched mm-hmm. instruments. And I was just in awe. I, like, I can barely play the piano. And, like, these people were playing, like, three different instruments in one night. They're, like, so many different songs. And singing on top of it. Like, it was impressive. And they were all... So good. Oh yeah, like there was a lot of instrument switching. There was there were three separate guitars I saw. There was an acoustic, a semi-acoustic, and a Stratocaster, I think. And there was a banjo, banjo as well. Yeah, there was a banjo, uh, upright, and, uh, upright and electric bass, uh, cello, drum kit. Uh, was there a uh, accordion? Accordion, yep. Yeah. Violin. <laughs> yep. But, but, um, the, I, the thing that you shake in it. Tambourine. The, tambourine. No, it's like. She held the, I don't know what it's called. It's like, it has this these little metal plates around it and you shake it and it goes like. Tsh. Yeah, it's a tambourine. Okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a tambourine and uh, a violin. And yeah, yeah it, was, it was a really impressive. And, and piano too. And the piano. The desk uh, became fold out a became, yeah, piano. It was Nazi and did not I see that one not, coming. Okay, so many hidden props as well. Like oh, yeah. every time they would cu- do something and then they're like, he just takes something out of his pocket or takes something out of a piano. And I wasn't expecting it. And I, you can't notice it. It's a very, a very plain setting. And all of a sudden they're taking out all of these props and you go like, where from? Because it's just so well hidden. The setup is really simple. Like, it's desk, paper, walls, whiskey bottle. And... That's all you need, really. Uh, <laughs> and a bed covered in paper. Oh, yeah. The bed's covered in paper. Which is... Uh, okay. Oh, oh, yeah. I didn't know. Visual metaphor, huh? Okay. Um, I didn't quite get that. What this reminded me a lot of, and if Ashley was here, she would definitely make the same comparison, was on Jaegen. We, we saw that a little bit ago. It also has this sort of cabaret-style feel to it. Uh, Onyegin, though, uh, played itself as more of a rock opera. This was more like one continuous, it was a concert-like performance Yeah, a lot of the way. Also, a lot of um, Across the Universe and Moulin Rouge. It reminded me so much of Moulin Rouge. And, uh, well, since we mentioned Cabaret, the one character did kind of look like the MC. Um, so Moulin <laughs> Rouge is actually one of my favorite 
movies. And um, as soon as one of the characters, he's not really named. I don't think any of them None are None of the characters named. are named except for the writer. And, and the women, I guess, like Suzanne and yeah, they're that, that, named after the, the song. songs. Suzanne, Marianne, yeah. But but yeah, well, as soon as he came in, um, if you guys are familiar with Moulin Rouge, um, he reminded me so much of Toulouse. Um, the char- yeah. But the character in Moulin Rouge, not the actual artist, because I don't know what the actual artist was like. Um, but yes, like this kind of comical, but at, le- but at the same time, having so much knowledge and like power over the writer. It was really interesting, and it also it was probably my favorite character in the in the show, just because he added something less dramatic, less um, heavy. Yeah, the accordion. <laughs> he played a lot of accordion. We're immediately on his side. <laughs> well, the girl also played the main one. Also played the accordion. Oh, that's right, she did. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, they, they a lot of instruments switching. Like it was, it's hard to tally up the number because they played each other's instruments a lot. The, oh, the one though, she had the cello all the time. There was one guy who was definitely a bass player, the 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 third guy, because yeah. Yeah, it was it just it was very impressive just the array of things. Also the way these songs sort of seeg into each other is pretty challenging. Like um Don't Go Home With Your Heart On opens the second act, which is um it it's it, it so it's it's from Death of a Ladies Man, which is so is Paper Thin Hotel, but it's that's not one of his uh better remembered songs, I don't think. It is very energetic. Um, and it's it's presented as sort of like a country and western song, which I think you can do with a lot of Leonard Cohen songs. He definitely did have an influence from it. Like, he referenced Hank Williams on Tower of Song. Um, but then that goes right into Chelsea Hotel number two, which is a um, complicated song of emotions. As the, the, they do, uh, they, they make a connection between that and famous, that song, and famous blue raincoat, which is, um, I know Chelsea Hotel number two is supposed to be about Janis Joplin, but if I didn't know that, it would probably it's a pretty strong connection. Um, Closing time, which is my favorite Leonard Cohen song, um, is a really driving electric song, which is it's not really in um, in his version. In his version, it's dun 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 It's really snarky and, and toxic when it's there. It's funny um, about closing time because when they started playing, I was like, oh, okay, closing time. They're going to end the show. And then they didn't. Nope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, guys. I'm going to watch more. <laughs> I was wondering if they were going to do that, but I, I didn't I, – I, I, I had it in my head that they, they didn't start with Hallelujah, so they were going to end with it. Like they, they really had to have Hallelujah in there. You couldn't ignore it um, because – it it just you you wouldn't be able to. It's his it's it's his most popular song. Like even people who have no idea who Leonard Cohen is have probably heard Hallelujah. Exactly, <laughs> me. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful song, and it it, is. it's been it's had some great covers. The Jeff Buckley cover is great. What's the cover you're familiar with? Um, what's her name? Alexandra something. She wasn't the X Factor. Yeah, I I really like like that version just because her voice is so powerful. Ah. Because I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. I can't. And um, there's, yeah, it's, it's a really great 
cabaret review. It really is. Like, it, it, it is a lot like Onyegin. And if you liked Onyegin, you're going to like this. If you like the music of Leonard Cohen, the people who uh, put this on, they know it. Like, they, they uh, it's a, it is uh, a really rich and layered approach to sort of these, the influences and all these sort of voices that kind of come together in his music. And I, I really, because uh, I, I, I was, I was, I was raised with that. I knew a lot of these songs right off the bat, and I was just, I was, I was thrilled to see it. Now, even for me, though, like has absolutely no clue who Leonard Cohen was going in, and every, and all, any of his songs, it was really enjoyable. It was, it's just a really easy, um, play to watch. You sit down. And you're just immersed into this world. And you don't really feel like leaving just because it sounds so good. There's no point where it really drags either. No. It just keeps going. Yeah. That's another way it's a lot like Moulin Rouge. just keeps up the momentum. Even though it's, it's very fast-paced, I think. Especially because um, there are like five different women represented by three different actresses. Yeah. I think that's it. Um, but one thing that actually stuck to my mind was that in the beginning um the the funny muse guy or yeah whatever, he was like 10 different women and then i was trying to count them <laughs> after that he said that and only five showed up and i was like oh okay we're not gonna see 10 we're gonna see five he fluffed the number <laughs> the dirty liar <laughs> i i think i i didn't notice that actually so i yeah, really hmm Wait a minute. I'm pretty. I mean, because there were spoken dialogue, but those were yeah. also lyrics. Oh, they were. I, okay, I, I had no I'm clue. I'm pretty sure they were <laughs> because they were weirdly emphasized bits of dialogue. Like, and I, I don't know how that would fit in outside of it, but I didn't recognize any of them as lyrics. So that's that was interesting. Huh. Wait. Um. And they also repeated a line. Um. You. Uh. You go. Before you go to heaven, heaven, you have to go to hell. Yes, is that it? Yeah, in this hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's written in the walls of this hotel. Before you go to heaven, you have to go to hell. Okay, yeah. God. Yes, and it literally <laughs> is because the walls are made of paper, and so they write it on it. And so. it's also, you know, the the writing, like like doing this thing, and loving too. Like all of these things have a cost. And it's debatable to what degree that cost is something the writer brings upon himself or is otherwise. It, it, it's, a, it's a complex relationship. An interesting motif there was actually the red paper, which was a symbol of rejection. Not only think. the red paper, but all, all the red objects. And it wasn't only rejection of from his side. It was sometimes rejections from their side as well, like theirs yeah. and the women. Um, so it was a red rose. He started off with a white rose. And then she ended up offering him a red rose, um, a red cloth, red letter, red letters, multiple mm -hmm. letters, a red paper boat. Mm -hmm. um, what else? One of those giant, it was either a cigar or a giant joint, but. Yes. Uh, no, I think yeah. it was a cigar. <laughs> and then uh, it, it was tapered. So, um, yeah. And then there were, it, there was a lot of that, though. That was sort of almost ending what would be scenes, maybe? Or ending the recollection, yeah. maybe, of each I th one. Yeah, I think it, it, each memory started with a white object and ended with a red object. Mm. So either him regret, him rejecting her or her rejecting him. Um, and it's really interesting how different the women were and how each music fit with the different representation of the women. 
Um, so there was one of them that was very daydreamy and the tune, um, well, their rendition of it was very light and soft. And then there was another one, woman that came out in this long skirt and felt very like high class where it was a bit heavier. Um, Is that Vienna? Like, la, 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 la. I, if you ask me the name of the song, I, I, I won't be able to tell you. <laughs> well, check out the show. It runs until the 21st at Firehall. Um, it's terrific. If you like Leonard Cohen, if you saw on Yegan and you like that. If, if you, you don't li- like him, you'll like the show. <laughs> if you don't like him, yeah, check it out. You'll probably, you'll, you might you might rethink your opinion. Okay, uh, we're just going to take a short PSA break, and when we return, we shall discuss Heathers. Yeah. Last night... I left the bar. I was thirsty, and I don't drink wine. I was desperate. I needed blood. I turned to the only place I could. The only place that could possibly help me. Hello, Canadian Blood Services. Hello. I need some blood. A. Positive or negative, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry, we're all out of A positive and negative. Would you like some O instead? No. No, that won't do. Thank you. Good night. Save me. Save yourself. Give blood. Voluntarily. This message was brought to you courtesy of the Canadian Blood Services and CITR Radio 101.9 FM. Hey, did you know? More than 4,500 Canadians are waiting for an organ transplant right now. Right now. 4,500. People are dying. And you could save a life. 90% of Canadians say they're willing to donate their organs. But only a few are registered. So what are you waiting for? Get registered. It's easy and it's free. Leave a legacy. Be a hero. Save Save a life. life. Find out how to register today. Go to kidney.ca. Well, that, yeah, yeah, that PSA was kind of random. It was the weirdest one I've ever heard. I, uh, well, we have the Snoop Dogg promo, but yeah, okay, yeah, that, that is still the weirdest PSA I've ever heard. So, Heathers. I loved Heather's. And the thing is, like, I had never seen it before, and I didn't know what to expect. And it was absolutely insane. Um, But I loved it. Um, It was so cool. So the thing is, like, I'm not necessarily – I'm friends with a lot of theater kids, and I was in a musical. So when you're in a musical with a bunch of theater kids, you make friendships with a bunch of theater kids, and theater kids love singing random musicals all the time. And they would often sing Heathers and the Book of Mormon and other <laughs> ones. And I'd be like, yes, nodding my head. And it's like, yeah, cool, guys. But now I finally watched it, and I can finally get the jokes that they <laughs> say, and I'm so happy. Yeah, and uh, really, is it is it already proliferated really quickly? Well, it's, Heathers isn't that it's, – it's not a, like, new musical. It's, it, it's – uh, I, I wouldn't expect it to be as popular as, like, the Dear Evan Hansen, though, or something. Oh, that's – yeah, they sing it, that all the time. Well, Waving <laughs> Through a Window is an amazing song. Uh, so Heathers is probably my favorite musical. It's one of my favorite movies. I, 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 love, I love Heathers to bits. Um, 
It's uh, so I've seen three renditions of Heather's at this point, uh, and this is the, if I'm going to be honest, the second best of them. But the rendition of Heather's that is the best is possibly the best musical I've ever seen, like the best musical stage show I've seen in my life. Like it, it could well be up there. So that's that's a pretty high competition. Like that was the York Theater run a couple of years ago. Um, the thing is, like, we watch, I think we watch different versions or different casts. Who was uh, JD in yours? Was it Elliot or Oliver? I have no clue because I don't know their names. Okay, let me just pull this up. Uh, which one of the Spillsburys was it? Wait, which ones? Yes. The croquet cast. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Croquet so cast. It was, so it was Jessica as uh, Jessica Wong as uh, uh, Veronica and Elliot as, um, <clears throat> sorry, as uh, JD. And so I saw the other cast. I saw the Scrunchies cast with Oliver as JD and I believe, um, oh, drat. Sorry, I, sorry, I'm just, my eyes are failing me. Um, but uh, we, uh, yeah, um, Paige, Paige Braithwaite as uh, Veronica. And uh, there, um, I can imagine a slight difference because, Oliver really does look a lot, look and sound a lot like Barrett Wilbert Weed, who's the original JD. And Elliot is, uh, he's got a very, he's, Elliot's got a deeper voice, sort of a... Um, he has a very deep voice, but it works really well. Okay, I wouldn't say his voice is for musical theater. I don't think it is. It's a, a beautiful voice. Every time he started singing, I'd be... Very impressed, and I just want him to hear him for longer. But he, because his voice is so deep, there were vocal. His vocal range is limited, and at points, some of the songs felt a little off. But his voice was absolutely beautiful. At the same time, that's interesting because I can I can imagine he is JD was probably very. Um... Very uh, aloof. Very yes. Dark. Very mysterious. Very apart from everything. Mm -hmm. I, I can I can definitely see that. Um, and um, with uh, with uh, um, oh man, I'm I'm dragging a little bit. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the songs in this that I really like. So my favorite song from Heather's. Is probably uh, for those who don't know the show. This is going to be really awkward, but my dead. I love my dead gay son. It was a sus. I wasn't expecting that song, and when it came up, I was just yelling, and I was starting to singing, even though it was the first time I saw the musical. I was so excited about it. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> man, that song is so. There's a single. That's a single line in the in the film. That line is one of the dads goes. I don't. I don't care if you were homosexual. I love him. I love my dead gay son. And it's uh, it's supposed to be this really tragic comic moment because it, it is at the funeral. And J.D. Wisecracks the same thing. Imagine if his son had a limp wrist with a pulse. And that's sort of the moment, one, Veronica realizes that, yeah, there's there's a human cost to this because he sees Kurt's sister, like kid sister. Um, and uh, it's also sort of the point when J.D. realizes that, hey, there's tangible effect to what he's doing. Which is the scary part, which because makes him willing to. Because he likes the tangible effect that he has. Yeah, he does. Like the in the in the movie, Jack, not Jack Nicholson, Christian Slater doing an impression of Jack Nicholson plays JD, where it just seems like he was waiting to kill people. In the musical, it's more like he does it by accident and realizes because he has 
a really twisted worldview that he can't that he's like, oh, okay, this produces change. Let's just keep doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and it was actually really sc- scary at points for me. Um, so, you know how I am watching shows. Yes. Some of my friends I aren't do. very appreciative very of my, so. um, my comments. And, yes, um, they almost told me to shut up. <laughs> wow. Like, like what, what, during which moment? Because um, like, I, at one point, I was just really annoyed at JD, and I started not yelling, but I said, oh, I can't say it. <laughs> Never mind. Content warning. <laughs> Proceed. Um, I was just, like, saying, like, oh, he's a uh, – no, I'm not going to say it. I feel bad saying it on radio. <laughs> I'm, like, yeah, I was cursing a lot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to assume it was, it was some kind of – you know, very very complicated invocation involving castration by goats. No, but that would be awful. But the thing is, okay, going back to what's kind of scared me. Well, I, first I found it f- funny and like in the making sense with like our context right now. Um, but then I realized it was actually in the play is that um, it was really smart how they started, how usually it's like this one person that comes on stage and says, hey guys, could you please turn off your phones and that kind of stuff. And they did a, like a announcement as if it was like start of the school day. And I thought that, that was so good and so creative. But the thing is like, they were like, there is um, school, there are school shootings. Be careful with school shootings or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, they're making like a current reference and then i realized watching the play is like no no they aren't they're making reference to the play and i didn't realize how current well the play does the the movie and the play both really because the play was recently written but the film wasn't the film was made in the 80s it's made when it's set and the the thing about that is that good lord does it stand just for that because it 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 does really (sighs) the sad thing about it is that the message is it, it does resonate with a lot of people, because the the comedy of Heather's is pitch black, but it's punching up, which I think could be missed. It's harder to miss now, post-Columbine, because you kind of have to if you're going to be able to enjoy the movie. But there are you can still miss it, including the people who made the Heather's series, which is ongoing. I don't have time to get into that right now, but it's, it's hot garbage. Wait, is it the one where they cr- made the Heather's be, like, diverse? Yeah. That's not a good it, idea. It misses the point of the series pretty strongly. Like, the the point of Heather's is that, one, it's not okay to kill people. Y- you're missing the point if you come out of Heather's thinking, well, you know what I should do is I should kill the people who annoy me. I watched Falling Down the other day, too, and man, I tell you, that story ended really well. Michael Douglas was the bad guy? Really? Yeah. Um... And then the other point is that it's okay to be different. It is. And, and the that... whole point is that the Heathers are so alike and so, like, popular and perfect and this model and that Ver- Veronica isn't. And that's okay to be well, not that. And, and that the, the point is also bury it, rise above. Like, what people think about you, you can't outlast. Because the reason JD kills people and the reason people do the things that provoke JD into killing people both stem from the same thing. They're they're not really proportional reasons. Like, the, 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 like you know, it's one of those things where um, 
like there's this discourse about the effect bullying had regarding Columbine. I, you got to mention Columbine if you're going to talk about Heather's because that's the thing. Outcast with a trench coat, friendship school. Yeah, yeah, you kind of got to talk about it. Um, and it's but reducing anything to the one cause, one single cause above all else is really dangerous to do. And th- one of the points that Heather's makes really well is that there's a huge communication gap that does not get helped when you try to force a narrative on people. That's the point. And Heather's, the, both the, the movie does this less but for comedy, but both the film and the musical use this for comedy at the expense of the teacher, who is a, a, sort of a new agey kind of person trying to get everyone well. to very publicly <laughs> experience grief. Yes, there's a reason confession became a private thing. When the Catholic Church is ahead of you on that reasoning, you got a problem. Yeah, it was it, it was really weird, especially because it backfires on her, but she doesn't care about the effect on the individual that just tried to tell her something important. She cares about the media. So as soon as like the media shuts down or like the media stops filming, she goes like, "Oh, it doesn't matter." Um yeah. Um, also, I don't know if the Heathers are the same for both both casts. They are, yes. Oh, okay. So the main Heather, because I haven't memorized Heather names. Chandler? Uh, yes. Emily Saint. Red Heather. Yes. <laughs> um, the, one of the first things I noticed about her, okay, so I, I went to with one of my dancer friends. She was sitting beside me. And the first thing I go, as soon as she walks on stage, I, I <laughs> tell her, um, look at her point. She was wearing heels, but she could see her foot, and I was just so impressed with that point because it was beautiful, like amazing foot. <laughs> That's a ballerina thing. It's not weird. I'm really? Sorry. Yeah, like you want because she probably does. Like she probably dances really well on point. At least is what it seems, and the way she walks and the way she moved around the stage, it just made me really, really happy. Because there was so much grace, and I just fit, it, it felt that it fit the, fit the character really well. That's interesting because I, I I didn't I I didn't quite notice that. It's one of those things, and because uh, each of the Heather's sort of have a persona. Yeah, it was a good show. Unfortunately, it's no longer running, but it was MTT's terrific. Check them out if you can. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it for this plus size show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm Jake Clark. I'm Lua. And. Uh, Cheers. Mm-hmm.